This is The Other 14 Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Other 14 podcast for the 2022-23 season. We should be calling this season the Postman as it just keeps on delivering. Game week 3 was prime Premier League football with some incredible results and some big shocks involving the Other 14. Four of the teams in the Other 14 are still undefeated and fighting away right at the top of the table, much higher than we thought some of them would be. Maybe we could be experiencing some sort of repeat of the 2015-16 season and perhaps we could have a surprise Premier League champion. This week, as always, we are joined by Tom. Hello, Reese. Hello, Tom. As we talk through some of the big results of this week and look at which managers might be slightly concerned that a P45 is heading in their direction. So, Tom, another week of high-quality football from most of the Premier League. Are we set to have one of the best seasons in years? I think it certainly looks that way, Reese. We've had some thrillers this week, some high-scoring games, some shock results, as you've already mentioned. Newcastle doing bits against City. We've had Fulham scoring a uh, last-minute winner against uh, Brentford in the London derby and Brighton once again doing bits in the Prem. It's been another fantastic week of Premier League football and I'm sure there's more to come. Using all the cliches, I believe it's a great advertisement for the game and I'm sure... We love cliches on the pod, you know this. (laughs) We do. We are 90% cliches. So, um, first things first, over to you, Tom, with the classifieds. Here are the classified results for match week three in the Premier League season 22-23. 1, Wolverhampton Wanderers 0, Crystal Palace 3, Aston Villa 1, Everton 1, Nottingham Forest 1, Fulham 3, Brentford 2, Leicester City 1, Southampton 2, AFC Bournemouth 0, 3, Leeds United 3, 0, West Ham United 0, Brighton Hove Albion 2, Newcastle United 3, 3. And thank you for those classified results. I suppose we should head straight into it. And the weekend of Premier League shocks really did start on Sunday afternoon up at Leeds, where the Whites hosted a Chelsea team that was lacking firepower. But come full time, people were only talking about Leeds' attack and how strong they looked. The game ended with an incredible 3-0 in Leeds' favour that not many people saw coming. So, The Rock and Kevin Hart, Barack and Michelle Obama, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy Rogers... These are three American power couples. But with the result at Elland Road, could Aronson and Marsh be the next big American duo, Tom? I think certainly that way. I think you also an honourable mention for Tyler Adams there. Fantastic performance. What a, what a start to the season from Leeds there. Third in the Prem, unbeaten. Jesse March is having a real impact this side, isn't he? He is. And it's great hearing him talk about um, talk about how they're doing, how they're developing he will always draw comparisons with Ted Lasso, which I feel is quite unfortunate <laughs> for. <laughs> he kind of will, though. He's a very charismatic guy, and the sort of positivity that us Brits kind of go, oh, why Why are you so happy about stuff? When, in fact, he has every reason to be. They've got off to a great start. They've got a striker who is scoring goals. They're beating teams that last season they would definitely would have struggled with. And after selling their two biggest players last season in Phillips and Rafinha, 
They must be absolutely laughing and having a party at Elland Road with the way they've started. I think it's fun times being a Leeds fan right now. It really is the way they've started the season. Yes, they did lose two of their big names during the summer, but that was kind of to be expected. The way they've started the league, though, uh, under Jesse March, you know, he has now matched in less than, I think, half a season's worth of being uh, a coach in the Premier League, matched Marcelo Bielsa's of, uh, record of um, wins against the big six with one still. It's um, it's early days for Jesse March, but he's definitely getting the spin on that side. It did seem that under Bielsa, and I know that lots of Leeds fans will be getting a little angry if we speak ill of the Messiah, but it did seem that Bielsa went into all of those games prepared to try and take it to the big six and was prepared to lose 6-3 if it meant that they scored the three goals. And it didn't play out well for them most of the time as you said he didn't get the wins no and they kind of capitalized on a poor Chelsea but that we shouldn't take away from the fact that Leeds's energy and tenacity in the game completely shocked Chelsea and really showed up the Chelsea players as they didn't look like they were prepared to work half as hard as the Leeds players were no absolutely um I think Tyler Adams really set the tone well to start the game he made an incredible tackle on Conor Gallagher um, early doors um, the energy that Aronson showed uh, after a poor back pass well not it wasn't a poor back pass from Thiago Silva but rather obviously mis- mishandled or mistouched by Edouard Mendy in goal the way Aronson really sort of tracked him down and absolutely hounded him you know you just shouted at Mendy there just to kick it out but you know he's still trying to take full control of it and then Aronson just laps it up and you can't ask for an easy goal for your, your first uh first notch on the score sheet uh, as a Leeds United player. And it just really sort of summed up the way this Leeds team is um, looking to go into this campaign. We, You mentioned Bielsa and the sort of organised or rather disorganised chaos that they showed um, under under him against the big six. Whereas this Jesse March side is is showing some form of structure and a an idea and a, and a, a shape of how to come out and play against this big six. Not necessarily just the big six sides, but just an actual sort of shape and philosophy of how to go about things rather than just sort of organised chaos. Exactly. And they have, and it's not just the big six, you're correct. Uh, They started off the season with that win against Wolves and then went and got the draw at Southampton from 2-0 down. And then going out and just making Chelsea... I don't know, they kind of steamrolled them. They just didn't know what to do. They were a bit shocked by the pace, the aggression. And it's they have really grown immediately under Marsh. He came in and I don't think his record towards the back end of the season, last last season, was that much better than that of Bielsa's. And they were somewhat fortunate to stay in the league because I think a lot of results of other teams went against them. So they rather stayed up because others were bad rather than them excelling under Marsh at the yeah. end of last season. But it's a completely different story this time round. You say undefeated three games in, which is really positive for them, considering I think last season they didn't pick up their first win for quite a quite yeah. a number of games. I think it even took them up to ten games to get two wins, maybe last season. And they're looking a completely different side, even though they've got the same players. And as we said earlier, it doesn't look like they're missing their big men that they sold. And they've been really shrewd purchases so far. And even Marsh has been able to incorporate one of the highest highest Leeds purchases. They signed Rodrigo going into last season 
for quite a lot of money. For, I think he's around 30 million or so. And he was pretty awful last season. And he's absolutely on fire this season. He doesn't seem to be able to stop scoring. No, top scorer right now with four. I know it's the very early days, but still to have um, after three games in to be uh, noted as the top scorer is definitely something that Rodrigo will absolutely love right now. Um, you've mentioned other signings, sort of Aronson and uh, Adams, sort of that uh, Jesse March knows from his um, Red Bull Salzburg days. And with Jack Harrison really sort of showing some great quality up, up in the uh, up in the forward line there. Really loving what, what we're seeing from this lead side right now. I do really like Jack Harrison. His work rate is unbelievable. Technically really good. Some players you go, oh, they do a lot. They run about. But he's also technically very, very good and so aware. This system really suits him. And it's no wonder that he's been, I think, subjected to about a £20 million bid from Newcastle. Oh, I think, yeah, according to uh, the the Twitter news, um, I think Newcastle earlier today put in a £20 million bid. Leeds rightfully rejected it because I think at this point yeah. they've got enough money. So unless he really wants well, to leave, but his performance... Um, his performance on Sunday showed that he was fully committed to the side. The distance he travelled and the way that he ran about was unbelievable. Well, I mean, let's let's put it this way: if Morgan gives White is worth forty-five million pounds, then Jack Harrison is very much worth the same amount. Completely forgot about Morgan Gibbs White. Oh God, Forrest. We'll um, get onto that later. <laughs> absolutely, but no, I think. I think if you're to ask Leeds fans going into the first three games against. Look, a a Wolves side, which are quite a good side, then Southampton may be a little poor, and then Chelsea. Their first three games, you would have maybe said Leeds fans would have gone, oh, we'll take, we'll take maybe three or four points from that. That'd be a good solid start to build on. Yeah. But being on seven now, it's, it's great for them. And what a way to start the season. And they're going to be hoping that they kick on and uh, produce some outstanding form through the rest of the season. Yep, absolutely. I think you need to look at their form against the other 14 because at the end of the day, Leeds, the aspirations this year might not necessarily be to sort of embed themselves inside that top 10 battle, but I think they need to be sort of well clear from that relegation fight. And the way they've started this year looked very much like that. They won't really be having any part of that. So, you know, fingers crossed for Leeds fans and they keep it up that way. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, exactly. They sh- didn't want to be anywhere near a relegation battle last season. Last season, they had some positives. They had some. They had some good wins. But I think there was always that daunting feeling of, oh, we're only hovering around sixteenth, seventeenth, and always close to relegation. Only really two bad games away from being down there. And I think for them, a successful season. I th- We'll see what we said. I can't remember what we said on the preview pod, but I think aiming for around that kind of 12th, 13th and up, I think that's more than achievable based on the way that they've started yeah, with I, these first three games. Absolutely. I think a solid mid-table. And I think one thing that Jesse March will absolutely love right now is that he's got Leeds fans chanting his name. There was some chance towards the end of the game sort of you know, chanting for, for Jesse March. So for that sort of backing, and you know, he, he kept them up last year, he started the season off bright. That is just huge for these going forward. And, you know, like we said, the aspirations for this year may not necessarily be to get into the, that top 10, but it's going to be for solid mid-table. Yeah, I think the mid-table is the aim. Obviously, we'd absolutely love it here on the other 14 podcast if they were to go unbeaten for the season because 
at this point. I think there will be harder challenges ahead. They came back from Southampton really well. And Chelsea aren't looking their best at the moment, lacking a bit of firepower up top, a bit chaotic at the back. And there will be harder challenges around the corner. But looking at their next three Premier League games, they've got Brighton next. They've got Brighton next, which that will be a good game based on how both teams have started in the league. Yeah. They've then home to Everton. And at this point, based on form, you've got to see that as a win. Yep. And then on just this first game of September, they're then playing Brentford, another team who's doing really well at this point. And I think there'll be another good game. There's so many teams at the moment that have hit a good level of form and are teams that we weren't necessarily expecting a lot from at the start of the season, just maybe building on their performance in the league last season. But now the game Brentford B leads, you're going, oh, the way both teams are playing, I want to watch that game. It will be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree there. So we'll see how they do up against Brighton next week. But to be honest, I don't think it'd surprise either of us if it was uh, all three points going back up to Leeds with them. Well, no, considering Brighton's home record. But, you know, this is the Premier League. Anything can happen. This is why we love it. Absolutely. And on to later on Sunday. Some people call the Championship playoff the richest game in football. But the late kickoff on Sunday, we were treated to the sports washing derby, where both teams were vying for the title of most human rights abuses most easily forgotten about, as Saudi Arabia played United Arab Emirates at St James's Park. Most were expecting a good battle between two socially conservative and capital punishment positive teams, and we did get it. The honours were shared in a 3-3 stunner, with Saudi, I mean Newcastle, taking a strong 3-1 lead deep into the second half. So, Tom, will Eddie Howe be disappointed that they didn't walk away with all the bragging rights? I think, firstly, let's put things into perspective. Newcastle were coming up against the champions of England, Manchester City, against a side who just, you know, haven't gone unbeaten, I think, in an away game since, like, August. Or was it? I've seen some of it, it's like April or August 2021, which is just ridiculous. I think it's now about 20 games unbeaten away from yeah. home um, they're, challenging, they're challenging Man United's record from also not that long ago where they went on a really strong run as well yeah. away from home um, but anyway yeah like I said first thing is to not sort of you know blow it out of proportions you know they were coming up against Manchester City however 3-1 up against this City side it was just mind-blowing the way that City, uh, the way that Newcastle were playing especially going a goal down early on you just felt as though this might have been just a turning point in the sort of sways of Premier League dominance. You know, we could potentially be seeing the rise of Newcastle very much. In it. And I think we will do anyway. You know, that's just what happens with the sheer financial backing that they have right now. But this game was a, a taster of, of things to come, I think. And for them to be 3-1 up was just simply stunning. Um, I expect the City to come back into it especially with the way they came back against Villa last year, because that's just a sign of champ- with true champions. But yeah, I think Eddie Howe will be... I think his overall emotions will be that he's, he was absolutely insanely pleased with the, the overall performance. But yeah, just a slight what if um, had they managed to sort of hold on. Absolutely. Um, they were... They played incredibly well. They had a, a really strong kind of 15, 20-minute part of the game where they were by far better than City. 
yeah. easily. I think Kyle Walker's going to be having nightmares about Alan St. Maximum running at him. He had him toast. <laughs> he did. He absolutely all over him like a nasty rash that you pick up on a night out in Newcastle, ironically. Oy. But yeah, they were incredible. And to go back to this podcast being 90% cliches, a 2-0 lead is the most dangerous lead to have. But saying that, Nick Pope had an absolute blinder to just keep it at the uh, with the 2-0 lead when they went 3-1 up. He should made be some, England's number one. He should be England's number one. Um, he was absolutely incredible. Just the sheer shot-stopping power of him, even when coming off the line. He was quick off the line, made some unbelievable great tackles. Um, one fairly late into the game where he ran out and pinched it off the foot of Gundogan. He was unbelievably impressive. And as you say, 3-1 up, you kind of hope to win, but the stubbornness that City have, they have showed it before, and to some extent there's no there's no chance keeping Haaland away from the goals. No. He's a, he's a monster. We can all look at that and go, he's incredibly good. And then also Kevin De Bruyne, that through ball that Pass. he played through to Bernardo was just... A completely... a little touch, but just sheer class. It was. He did get a little deflection, but even then, I still think Bernardo was getting onto oh, yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I don't think anything should be taken away from the performance that Newcastle put in. To be three-one up against Manchester City is no easy task, and no. and they did it so well coming back from already one-nil down with goals from. I think the first goal was Almiron's. That Almiron, was. Yeah. I don't think he knew much about it, but no, it was, but it was both sort of off, off, off the uh, off the thigh, I think, wasn't it? But both of them charging in on a really good cross into the box. City's backline didn't really know what to do with that, and then Callum Wilson's goal was a really good finish again. Yep, and then following that up with a Trippier free kick, which was absolutely gorgeous. It he's now scored well. Trippier, since joining Newcastle, has taken four free kicks. He has scored three of them. Oh, wow. Exactly. That's I did not know. I it's, love that. It's an incredibly good conversion rate. And you can see why they brought him into the team. You can see why they've made him captain. He's got good experience from being at Tottenham. He's then gone and won the Liga with um, Atletico oh. under Simeone. Mm-hmm. And they're just looking really, really good right now. I know, obviously, the easy comment to say about Newcastle is, oh, they spent a lot of money. I don't think they're going to win the league. I don't think they're going to push for a top four, to be honest. No. But I think just for Newcastle fans to see the complete contrast in football that they were witnessing under under Mike Ashley's ownership and under so many managers, it was really poor. I know that at times they loved Benitez, but even the football under Benitez wasn't that good. And it's just been a really good start for them. Another undefeated team in the Premier League. All Newcastle fans, I think when they had this new ownership come in and they had Eddie Howe come in, I don't think they were planning on taking over the world. But I think they'll just be happy that they're getting entertaining football, good performances from a team that is looking technically really strong. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think one of the things that I was sort of wary about when Eddie Howe came in was, and when the money came in, was whether or not Eddie Howe might have been slightly overwrought by the position that he found himself in, because this is definitely his biggest job in his, his in his management or managerial career. 
and sometimes the players that we I don't know necessarily the structure of who is buying these players, whether or not it's it's Eddie Howe or uh, there's a, a, like a sporting director set up in terms of incomings. And sometimes when you're bringing in these individ- individuals, you can as a manager, you can be slightly overwrought by it. But I think Eddie Howe clearly has a setup that works for him right now. Newcastle start the season on absolute fire. Yeah, the way, you know, they were slightly disappointing last week against Brighton, but the way they've come out all guns blazing against City just, just clearly shows that it's not just the players that, that have been brought in under this new ownership that are having an effect. I think it's definitely clear to see that Eddie Howe has or is having an impact on this side, which I think is huge for him going forward personally, because you know, well, sometimes, as we saw with City, when Mark Hughes was in place early on in when City started coming through, if he can sort of keep that going and not sort of be too overwrought by the situation, then that's just going to be huge for him uh, going forward. Newcastle spending needs to be sustainable and sensible and has to be for players that they think or for players that the manager is going to use and is happy signing. We've spoken yeah. a lot about last week about Forrest's purchases and how much they've spent and we kind of looked at those going oh are these all the managers picks and we doubt that while looking at the players that have been bought in under Eddie Howe so far he's using them they're playing well also within the squad he's made players that were maybe on the fringe suddenly stand out a little Almiron wasn't doing particularly well got one of the goals he converted uh, Joe Linton from that centre forward that wasn't scoring goals into an absolute busybody who hounded the City midfield on Sunday and then even someone like Longstaff who was not really involved I know he came through Newcastle's other oh, bright prospects but he wasn't really looking all that and then yesterday he had a really good solid performance against City I just want to make a big shout out for Almiron because he, he looked a man possessed on Sunday. He looks as though he was absolutely desperate to get on the score sheet. And it is karma to City and specifically Jack Grealish. After Jack Grealish's comments when City were celebrating their title win last campaign and he made a comment regarding Almiron and Mares. Okay. Basically saying that Mares's performance against Aston Villa was Almiron-esque or something similar to or something along those lines. So for then Almiron to go and put in the performance that he did against City in that game, I think it's just pure karma and just absolutely gold. So fair play to Almiron for that. Absolutely. He came over from America and people were a bit unsure of who, well, he was a Paraguayan that got lots of goals. But yesterday he looked like he was definitely on some sort of South American export, the way he was charging <laughs> about. He got the goal. He's earned it because I think he probably works hard enough that he almost deserves more goals. Yeah. and But it doesn't always work like that in football. No. You can have the laziest players that somehow always score and then players that work really hard that never really get that luck. But He did miss a sitter five minutes before that, but yeah. He did, but I suppose that is where he does have more skill in running about working hard rather than his clinical finishing. I think yeah. there's probably work there. But he was absolutely in the right place, right time, where he didn't really need to rely on any great technique or skill. He was just in the right place for it to almost bounce off his thigh and go in. So phenomenal performance from him and a really good performance from the whole team. And they'll maybe be disappointed. And I think they were on reflection, they'll be a little disappointed that they, 
I'm not going to say they threw a two-goal lead away because it is against Manchester City, as you said right at the start. They are the champions for a reason. They showed last season against Villa, they came back from losing to win the game. And they showed at the London Stadium, their last away game of the season, when they were 2-0 down, they came back to draw 2 all. They are a team that, although they get lots of criticism in Europe for kind of folding, they haven't really shown that much in the league. And going to St. James's Park isn't an easy place to go to at the moment. And they are a really good team to be able to bounce back like that. So I don't think Newcastle should be too hard on themselves. And Eddie Howe certainly shouldn't because it was almost nearly the biggest shock of the weekend. But even still taking almost... Most people would have written down Manchester City to get all three points and almost snatched two yeah. of those points away from them. Really, really good. Yeah, I think it's just a sign of things to come for Newcastle. So put put that one to bed and just sort of hold it in your back pocket as one of the best performances that you have seen since um, the new ownership has come in. But I think from what we saw on Sunday, there's definitely more performances like that to come. Exactly. And looking at their next three games in the league... Away at Molyneux against a Wolves side, they might fancy themselves away at Anfield. They're maybe not expecting much from that, but the way they played against City, if they put that as much endeavour into the game against Liverpool, they've always got a chance of getting a point or three. And then at home to Palace, once again, they'll be on a good run. They are on good form and they, they won't be scared of any of these teams. And moving on to another one of our unbeaten teams in the Premier League. Graham Potter's men, I don't think they really surprised us going to the London Stadium and getting all three points. It's a ground which they have had lots of success on. They just continued this sort of form in East London on this week and on Sunday, winning very comfortably 2-0. I think we've talked a lot about Graham Potter and how Brighton play over the last couple of weeks, and rightly so. But I think the bigger questions are here. How much trouble are West Ham in? Currently 20th in the table, zero points, zero goals, and the fans booed them off the pitch. Always be wary of Brighton away from home, and especially against West Ham, and it did prove to be the case this week. Like I said, is it panic stations at Stratford? Hmm, I'm not so sure. It is zero points and zero goals in three games. However, and you know, Moyes has, has said that it's clearly not a great start. But I think West Ham will come good eventually. You know, we looked at sort of the Arsenal's of last year when they started and didn't get any points. We were sort of jokingly talking about relegation. Uh, that was clearly never going to be the case. And I think just a, a little bit of pinch of salt, just think, yeah, West Ham clearly aren't playing very well right now. But I, I do expect them to start to turn things around. They do need to start turning things around because, you know, zero goals in three games where they've had 38 shots on goal and not coming away with a single um, single notch on the score sheet to, to show for it is is very disappointing. It really is. And I think when we did our pre-season preview, we'd certainly turn around and said their first three fixtures are going to be difficult games. City was always going to be difficult. Nottingham Forest, their first game at the City ground in the Premier League in years, and then yeah. Brighton, the bogey team. I think I said I could see West Ham being zero points after three games. And I think any West Ham fan 
calling for Moise's head is far too premature, far too reactionary. Fans that are criticising the players, I get a little bit because you'd expect, particularly after in the Brighton game, they were extremely poor. But I think there is a little bit of concern because their next game is against a poor Aston Villa at Villa Park, but it's no easy three points. But then home to Tottenham and away at Stamford Bridge. And then the fourth game is then home to Newcastle. There's not many points you would be guaranteeing there. You wouldn't feel like putting many of those games on an accumulator for West Ham to win. No. I have, and and you, you you definitely called in the Villa game a must-win game. Is it is it you know fourth game in, and we're already calling the Villa game a must-win game? Is that I'm, good I'm or not, bad? I'm not sure it's must-win, but given how fans are so reactionary, playing a reasonably poor Aston Villa, if they were to lose that game, because I think you can make some reasonable excuses about the other games, playing Man City, of extremely good team. Forest, I don't... Well, actually, against Man City and against Forest, West Ham did not play badly. And against Forest in particular, they were incredibly unlucky not to get all three points. But the Brighton game, they did play badly. So I think not necessarily it must win, but the West Ham players certainly need to show a lot more quality as there wasn't much on the pitch on Sunday. If... West Ham were to beat Villa with a solid good performance, maybe even a clean sheet because they haven't had one of those yet. That would really put them in good stead for two big London derbies following that. Because West Ham in the past have shocked some of the big six with these big London derby wins. It's In recent seasons, they have beaten both Chelsea and Tottenham home and away. So... I think they need a bit of com- a bit of a confidence boost going into those games because they will not be easy games. No, absolutely not. Like you said, you've also you also beat Liverpool last year at home, so you've turned the London Stadium into some form of fortress. I say fortress. You know, you, you just lose to Brighton, although you know Brighton are a really good side. I was going to say a very good Graham Potter Brighton. Yes, a very good uh, Graham Potter Brighton. But you, you felt as though when West Ham made that move over to the London Stadium that they weren't quite settling in as well. Fans were sort of very up in arms about the move and the whole sort of situation regarding the London Stadium, whether or not it's a good football stadium or not, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then the performances that we've seen from West Ham over the last couple of seasons... It just it feels as though there's a bit of a lack of spark right now. We've seen Antonio look a complete shell of himself in the first three games. You know, he had 21 touches against Brighton, and that was the lowest amount for a starter, and that includes both of the keepers. So that's not great things, not great signs for Mikel Antonio right now, especially considering the way he started last campaign. Absolutely on fire. The summer signings don't seem to have bedded in quite well, and I think Moyes has mentioned that in his um, in his post-match comments regarding the amount of players that he's having to bed in right now. Aguard, and correct me if I'm wrong, is currently out injured. So he is out. <laughs> he got injured in the first preseason game he played for West Ham and won't, well, probably won't be back until after the World Cup. So we're looking for the December fixtures for him to make his return. Right. With regards to the other signings. So yeah, this that was the 
point I was going to go on to. Um, So Scamacha hasn't really hit the ground running. Yes, he did score midweek against Viborg and he hasn't really started a game yet, as far as I'm aware. He hasn't started in the league. And I think that's possibly another one of the directions of frustration from West Ham fans that David Moyes is. We have just spent 30 odd million on this striker. Give him a chance because giving him a 10 minute run out against, well, it was a bit longer than that, but a 20 minute run out against Manchester City. He had no chance of really having an impact in that game when they're already pretty much 2-0 down. Yeah. Then the Forest game, it didn't give him long enough. I think he could have brought him on at half time because Mikel Antonio has not been having much of an impact. And then the Brighton game, Antonio has only had 21 touches. At half time, it couldn't have been much more than 15 at that point. So you kind of think, give this new guy more of a run out. Yep. And then your new signing, Kera, who was making his debut at the weekend, then gives away the penalty. So, so Moyes did kind of justify that a little bit. It was a bit of a silly tackle to make. But based on how Kera played on Thursday, he had a good game against Viborg. And then I think it was the right time, given the injuries and fitness concerns around West Ham defenders, I think putting him at a centre-back was the better idea than playing uh, Ben Johnson there again. And it's one of those that I think Moyes said in his interview, he hasn't had many pre-season minutes under his belt. So he's walking in fairly fresh into a team where he's only played, I think, about 30 minutes competitively in, also with a fairly big changed squad from Thursday to Sunday. And it's a bit of a silly mistake. He could have probably stayed on his feet. There was minimal contact, so I could also see the penalty be not being given as much as it could have been given. And maybe it's just that needs to be a bit head smart, and maybe if he was a bit more up to scratch, he wouldn't have made that mistake. But I think he was a good signing for them. I think you're looking at a PSG centre-back who has a lot of experience. I think that's a good signing for them. But as you say, if Moore is saying he's having some difficulty embedding them into the team and getting them up to standards, then... For a West Ham fan, you've just got to think, how long is it actually going to take for these signings to have an impact? Because how reactionary football fans are, how reactionary football club owners are, he won't have months and months to try and get it right if they're still sitting towards the bottom end of the table. No, and that's the thing. You know, we, like I said at the start of this bit, West Ham have been disappointing, but let's not hit panic stations right now um west ham have an incredibly high standard right now in terms of where they've been at the last couple of seasons and i still expect them to be up or thereabouts at the end of the season however on the converse side of things the way the likes of newcastle have started the way lights of bryson have started the way lights of leeds have started and we've seen other sides you know the likes of brentford's for those sort of additional spaces in Europe that West Ham have been so accustomed to the well accustomed to the last couple of seasons, if they fall even any further behind, then that is a long catch up. It's still a long season. But you don't want to be falling too far behind too early on. No, you don't want to be falling too far behind early on. But I suppose not that this should be in their thoughts now. They do then have the Conference League to fall back on. A successful European campaign does give them Europa League qualification if, and they would win something. 
I'm not saying at three games into the season with 35 left in the league that they should immediately go, well, let's try and win the conference league and not try in the league. But they do almost have a little bit of a plan B. But yeah, you're right in pointing out in our preseason podcast, we said the teams that will be up and around that kind of seventh, eighth, ninth position would include probably West Ham, Brighton, Newcastle. Yeah. And you look at the starts of the other two. West Ham haven't been up to standard and aren't close to them performance-wise or points-wise. Absolutely. And a bit of a way next, like I said, probably, yeah, maybe too early to classify it as a must-win game. But you're kind of looking for three points there. Absolutely. So some West Ham fans might not be happy with David Moyes' current performance, but there are also a couple of other managers in the league that could be in danger if things aren't turned around quickly. Everton and Frank Lampard, a one-all draw against Forest at the weekend. And Steven Gerrard's Villa lost again this week with a loss to Palace. And they looked poor in that game. And then Leicester fans did boo the team. And Brendan Rodgers is under a lot of pressure. So Tom, what do you make of these three managers in their starts? And would you say one of these three is the most likely to be sacked this early in the season? I think out of the three that you've mentioned, I think absolutely. I think that one of the first to go is definitely out of those three. However, I, I I would say Brendan Rodgers, with especially what he what he's done with Leicester since he took over from Claude Powell, is, is taken into another level in terms of sort of quality and in terms of how he's getting Leicester to finish Premier League campaigns and sort of their their finishing point in the table. However, like I said, Leicester seem to be all over the shop at the moment, don't really have a structure. They're not picking up the results. And like we know, it's a results-based industry. So who am I to say? You know, stranger things have happened. So Brendan Rodgers being one tipped for the um for the first, you know, managerial second of the season. I I would be slightly surprised. But like I said, anything could happen. I think the two that are definitely in trouble would definitely go for number one, Frank Lampard, and number two, Steven Gerrard. Yeah, I think with Brendan Rodgers, he has earned himself a lot of credit with the Leicester fans and the Leicester board. And I know we've spoken about it before, about the amount of money being put into the team. He definitely has not been assisted by Wesley Fofana, I think, not being in the right headspace to play at the weekend. That was his comments, yeah. And the loss to Southampton was, admittedly, some good goals from Southampton. But Southampton is a team that has managed to chip away a couple of points early on this season, but they've not been good. And if the Leicester team wanted to make a statement, particularly to Fafana, if he's making issue about being at Leicester, the best thing they could have done is go and win that game and gone, well, we don't really need you. And this has put a little bit of a target on Rodgers' back, particularly as I don't think the fans are particularly happy with him. No. And... The Vardy contract signing in the middle of the week seems to have done absolutely no favours for Brendan Rodgers either. You know, granted, club legend will probably retire maybe as a as a Leicester City player, but the results on the pitch just simply haven't been good enough. And Leicester fans are not fickle. They've you know come up through through the ranks, sort of through the Championship, and you know got that incredible league title win back in 2015-16 and have been there or thereabouts in terms of European spaces. So I'm now expecting, because Leicester owners-wise have been 
clever and sort of sensible with how they've managed to run the club and they've put it they've put the club in a position that means they can compete year in year out with these sort of positions other performances just like I said haven't been there only shot on target was the goal Chelsea away next once again a goal ahead at home and then lose a lead at home it, it just Things aren't going well right now for Brendan Rodgers, and I think he's desperate to turn it around. The fun news, like you said, is just not helping matters, and it, it is a bit meh right now for, for Brendan Rodgers. Absolutely. And I think he deserves time. He's earned time, and I don't think he should be one of the first to go. Then you look at the fixtures. Chelsea away, Manchester United at home, Brighton away, then home to Villa, and then away at the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, that is five miserable games that they've got to try and get through. And that is just trying to get to the international break. It's a tough run of fixtures. It's a horrendous run of fixtures. Um, but we shouldn't just dwell on Brendan Rodgers. No. Um, because there have also been some very poor managerial performances. So looking at Steven Gerrard, hasn't been a great start. Losing to Bournemouth first game of the season, we said should have been winning that game because Bournemouth aren't that great. A new team promoted, you should want to go and win that. Then went and beat Everton, but an Everton team that doesn't really have a striker, at the time didn't really have a defence. And then losing to Palace. And Palace are playing well, a good side, but I think the manner in which they lost was pretty poor. Yeah, I, I think, you know, they started off, you know, very well, you know, going going ahead early. But then, you know, football cliche time, you're most susceptible after just scoring. And that came to fruition again in um, Zaha's goal at Selhurst. Gerard, I think, was right in his post-match interview regarding the penalty incident regarding Luka Dina. Um, I think <sighs> slightly unlucky in terms of the ball touching his hand, but, you know, that's always going to be given a penalty no matter what. I think at the end of the day, I think the decision to give the penalty was not the, the wrong uh, wrong thing there. I think it was just the fact that Luka Dina considered himself a little bit unlucky. But I think that was definitely the turning point in the game. Once, and Martinez obviously made the save, but then Zaha was there to gobble up the rebound. Once Palace went 2-1 up, Villa heads just dropped. Uh, and that's not the response that Stevie G will want from his side. You know, we talk about Stevie G and his legendary status as a player and the ability to sort of you know, rile up his sides and get them sort of up for the fight. We didn't see any of that with Villa on Saturday. He he was a player that could grab victory from the jaws of defeat. Prime looking at the 2005 Champions League final. Villa showed none of that character, did they? They went 2-1 down and it was, oh, another loss. Not getting the win here. um... It's not very nice playing here at Selhurst Park. No. Let's look for next week's fixture and hope we can do better that time, which is not a good enough response. The honeymoon period for Steven Gerrard is definitely over at Villa Park. I think that was over probably halfway through his um, tenure last year. And now it's definitely, you know, they need to start putting performances in because those Villa fans are rightly sort of getting on his back now. Well, There's no he... shape. There's no midfield. It's just lacking something. Well, looking at, even the fixtures that finished off last season, they weren't looking great. They got managed to get four points from Burnley in their last few games because they had to play them fairly close together. But otherwise, it's a fairly dreary reading for them. And you would have thought they'd come out a bit harder, a bit stronger this season. 
wanting to prove a point, those Villa players, confirming the signing of Coutinho, signing a new centre-back. It's not really happened for them. And I don't know. They've got a good squad. They have players that can play good football. They have Jacob Ramsey. They have Danny Ings. Ollie Watkins has proven himself to be very good. But there's just nothing there. And I don't know whether it's a motivational issue. I don't know if it's a tactical issue. But at some point, well, as you said, the fans are already looking at Stevie G and it's not looking good for him, is it? No, it really isn't. And then Steven Gerrard's midfield partner in crime for England, Frank Lampard at the blue half of Merseyside. God awful is how I would describe them. Everton fans would probably use a couple more expletives and say it in a slightly higher pitch than that. But it's just gone from bad to worse. I thought when they went 1-0 down against Forest, I thought, wow, Lampard's going to be gone at the end of the day. But they did manage to snatch one back almost instantly with a long ball from Pickford through to Damari Gray, which is a bizarre goal to score. You wouldn't put those two as the assist and goal combination. But still, Goodison must have been a horrid place to be for an Everton player and the Everton manager on Saturday afternoon. No, we know that um, Everton fans, when they don't see performances, they all get really, really sort of rolled up. Um, and we just didn't, like you said, we didn't really see anything from Everton that would suggest that they're sort of over their sort of nightmares from last year. Everton actually avoided, yeah, thanks to Damari Gray, Everton avoided losing their first three games of the top flight season for the first time since 1990. So that's wow. going way back. So, so the full Premier League, they've never lost their first three games. Full Premier League plus the two seasons before that. Yeah. Wow, so, that is mightily impressive. Um, but if anyone could have done that, it would have been Frank Lampard. Yeah. 19 shots on goal, only one scored. It, it, again, just Everton, just, they were so. Not necessarily wasteful in attack, but they just didn't really offer anything. There are only sort of really real outlets at the moment. It seems to be Damari Gray, who typically the only goals that he really scores are sort of Coutinho West type things where he's sort of cutting in on his right foot and shooting it into the far corner. And then well, your only choice of centre forward is Solomon Rondon, who doesn't have exactly the best uh, record in the Premier League with um, Dominic Calvert Lewin out. So Everton are desperate, desperate, desperate for reinforcements in attack because the way it started this year you just don't you don't think anything good is going to happen and if things go bad to worse I dread to think what that Goodison Park atmosphere is going to be like oh, it's going to be awful isn't it looking yeah. though at so how many shots did you say Everton had 19 shots on goal they had 19 shots on goal their xg was only 1.43 so it goes to show the quality of opportunity they were creating was woeful. Yeah. But then on the other end, the defending's not great because they conceded a goal to Forrest whose XG was 0.92. So, <laughs> so admittedly, you could say, oh, Forrest again, being a bit lucky. But knowing Everton as we know them and having watched Everton, they've been poor. They've not made good signings. And once again, we're going to say if Anthony Gordon goes... That squad, that attacking line is incredibly poor, even at the moment if it's being led by Solomon Rondon. And then around him, Anthony Gordon, good player, maybe could go. Damari Gray got a good goal, in all fairness. I thought his finish was really good. His run was really good. But he's largely inconsistent. Then Dwight McNeil, 
doesn't really offer much, does he? And then the rest of the team, Iwobi, Tom Davies, they're not getting goals from midfield, are they? So no, they need to either do bits in the transfer market over the next eight days, nine days, or Frank Lampard needs to do a lot of reading of books by Brian Clough and Bobby Robson because he's not cut out with this squad and and he's not going to create any miracles with this team whatsoever and they're almost destined for the drop at this point. So obviously we've been speaking a lot about managerial sackings. I'm not about, by the way, I'm not about to break break one because that, that's not I thought you were just going to gonna announce not, no 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 I'm, I'm not about to I, break I one. thought that would have been absolutely phenomenal yeah. a breaking <laughs> of a um, of one it, on it, 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 no um, however I've just gone onto odds checker um, other betting sources are available about who is the favourite at the moment for the first uh, first sacking and we sort of touted up probably Frank there as the, the favourite it's not actually it is Brendan Rodgers no, a four to seven, um, four to seven on. Is that because the way Leicester fans have kind of turned on Rogers a little bit? I, I think so. And then you look at the others. So I think we've we've got the top three absolutely spot on. It's it's Rogers, Lampard, and Gerrard. But Lampard and Gerrard are six to one. Oh, that's good whereas money. Ro- whereas whereas Rogers is four to seven on. See, I'm not supporting betting, but they're good odds. For Lampard to go, to be first to go, six to one. I suppose the thing that's going against Brendan Rodgers is that run of fixtures. Yeah. Chelsea, United, Brighton, Aston Villa, Tottenham are yeah, ugly games. Run, Everton do have Brentford, Leeds. Which you go for both of them, you, you fancy Brentford and Leeds at this point. But yeah. also, you could maybe see... Everton could, in theory, scrape something. Last season, you would have thought Everton would be able to scrape something from those games. Yeah. But then Merseyside derby, Arsenal, and then West Ham finishes it off before the international break. Between all of these teams looking at their fixtures, I don't see them really, in the next five fixtures, I don't really see any of them managing much more than four points. No. And let's put it this way. If it is another one outside of those three that we've mentioned, I will also be very surprised. I suppose looking at fixtures, the next is just purely on points and fixtures would be David Moyes. But that would make no sense to me, given no. where West Ham are at right now and what he's done for the club. While I think looking at what managers have done for the club, I think Moyes has done brilliantly with West Ham to get them where they're at. Brendan Rodgers continued the almost the good work of Claudio Ranieri's stint and converted that into an FA Cup win and constant European position challenging. Yep. While Gerrard's come in to Villa, not done much better than Dean Smith. And match and, Gary Neville. And match Gary Neville. It might even be worse now than Gary I Neville. Think it's probably worse now, yeah. yeah. And then Lampard's come in to Everton, taken over from Benitez, and just took them downhill. That's why I think they could be one of the favourites to go, looking at what's upcoming for them and almost like the credit they have within the fan bases. They have not much between them. So six to one, good odds. Put a fiver fiver on each and you're still coming out good because I think it will be one of them too. So I guess it will just be the next couple of weeks and we may see our first Premier League departure. And looking at it at the moment, it could be from the other 14, unfortunately. 
And next up, Tom, you've got a twist on Stats Corner. And welcome to Stats Corner. So yeah, Reitz, a little bit of a twist from Stats Corner, moving away from more of the stats area this week. Uh, As you know, it's the 30th year of the Premier League. I thought I'd do something to celebrate that. And uh, I'm going to have a look back on those players of the other 14 that have, have had us at the edge of our seats. Those who have contributed to what the Premier League is today. You know, they might have scored one of the best goals that the Premier League has ever seen. You know, it might have been for an outrageous tackle or, or a controversial moment or a drop of the red mist, uh, as we say, or simply because their story is too good not to tell. Uh, and also to see what has happened to them post their uh, Premier League uh, exploits and what they are up to today. This week, and uh, the first player on the other 14 alumni feature is JJ Kotcher. What a player. What a player indeed, Reese. Nigerian international played for Bolton between 2002 and 2006. And those of us who were growing up in the sort of noughties, early um, sort of, you know, good sort of 10 years that the, the Premier League sort of been about and then beyond that sort of the, the early 2000s and onwards, those of us who grew up that time sort of remember JJ Akocha as this incredible player and one that we'd, you know, try and replicate. And then, and you know, one as a neutral that simply just astounded us. He joined on a free from PSG and went on to become a much-loved figure at the Reebok, what it was called back then. And what is his, uh, what is his thing, Reese? What is his uh, little nickname that he has? He was so good, they named him twice. And on a side note, he made a Sam Allardyce football team entertaining to watch that was one of the most extraordinary things and yes it was so good they named him twice he left for Qatar back in 2006 after losing the captain's armband which he did hold for two years at that point but with the potential of a move and the speculation that sort of surrounded that he was rather stripped uh, of the captaincy at the time he went to play Qatar for, I think it was just around a year, and then he came back and played in Whole City's uh, promotion push back in 2007-2008. Didn't quite live up to the hype that we saw during his Bolton days. Injuries and form played his time there. With the potential of Hull, and as it did turn out, Hull did get promotion, he was hinting of sort of coming out of retirement because he did make the announcement towards the back end of that year. However, it was shortly put to rest after Hull City released him. I mean, what can we say about JJ Akotcher as a player? He's you know, supremely confident with the ball at his feet in his prime. He was a flair player, sort of one for the eye, flamboyant in his nature. Scored one of the best individual goals that you'll ever see in the Premier League against your West Ham back in 2003 to help steer the Wanderers away from relegation. However, probably a little bit inconsistent at times. I think he only really managed, I think it was like 18 goals in 120-odd appearances for Bolton. And that inconsistently probably meant that he never got quite the move away from Bolton that, you know, in, especially now these these sort of modern times, um, not saying that back then it wasn't modern because that would then call us old, which I don't like. Um, but sort of nowadays you sort of see players who do put in those sort of performances and then get immediately linked with a move away. He never quite got that. And like I said, he was one of those players as a kid you'd be excited to see even if he wasn't on your team. He's the sort of player that would excite you as soon as he got on the ball even as an opposition player you kind of looked at him and went 
oh, if he pulls off some magic, it will be to the detriment of my team. But you'll still get to see some magic. And I know that maybe his stats of goals don't necessarily match the hype. But I think that's why that's why he is a cult hero in that it wasn't necessarily season-defining stints at the highest level he could. But it's the memories that a player like that breeds uh, amongst the fan base. And if you were to turn around to Bolton fans and say, who was your best player after over the last 20 years? Admittedly, they've then dropped through the league, so there's not that many to go on about. But JJ, I would imagine, would be almost all of their number one pick if they're of that age, because his performances were majestic. His skill was incredible. And you're right, he never got one of those big moves away. But I think that's almost what makes the time that he had a team like Bolton that bit more special, knowing that they got him in that kind of golden period of his career where he was just fantastic to watch. He was incredibly entertaining. And almost what we were saying about last week, that Bolton, when they were in the Premier League, weren't a team that were expecting to win anything. They weren't expecting to win the league. They weren't expecting to necessarily win a cup. They weren't expecting to qualify in a European position. But they still have memories of those times. And all it took was one player being phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of part and parcel of being a fan of the other 14. You did mention that um, JJ is still absolutely adored by the Bolton fan base. Um, they actually voted in 2017 about who was their greatest ever player. And you wouldn't be surprised that JJ came out on top there. Like you said, since JJ's departure, Bolton haven't really had a lot to sort of pick from because they have rather sort of dropped out of sort of out of the limelight somewhat. They've dropped through the leagues. And JJ sort of has mentioned that really in his sort of post-Bolton um, sort of comments. He was so actually so disappointed to see Bolton drop out of the Prem when they did eventually in 2012. They actually came out and said that his time there was a complete waste um, as the club didn't build upon his sort of foundations that he that he laid there when he was a player at the Reebok. And you can't really blame him, really. They finished seventh the year after he left and did actually land a last 16 spot in the UEFA Cup that year, or rather the year after. But then Bolton never again finished inside the top 10 um, after 2007 and then were ultimately relegated in 2012. I think it was an era that it was that kind of first big job that brought Allardyce to the forefront of everyone's, like knowledge because I don't think I think he'd maybe been over in the States for a bit before he went to Bolton and then he came to Bolton and pretty much built that team to be a Premier League team had a couple of seasons there and with JJ who is a complete not an Allardyce player he (laughs) He really isn't he really isn't he's absolutely not because you wouldn't associate JJ Okocha with defensive setup hard work and grinding out results. You associate him with flamboyancy, flair, and skill. And I'm not saying players that played under Allardyce didn't have that, but they're definitely not the three things he's looking for in a player when signing them. And I think that's almost what made it a bit more special that JJ was there under Allardyce. And I do get his disappointment in them falling 
out of the Premier League the way they did. There was definitely a bit of a managerial merry-go-round at Bolton leading up to the years leading up to their relegation. I think they took on Sammy Lee at one point. They had uh, Owen Coyle. They got him from Burnley yep. when they got promoted. It was all a bit messy. Gary Megson as well. Oh, wow. Gary Megson. That is a quiz answer, isn't it? <laughs> and But they never really built on that. They never really had a sustained period of investing in the team solidly in a way that would help them develop. But I think part of that is, though, looking at it on reflection, is that Bolton were always punching above their weight. If you look at the size of the town and how actually into football that area is, and the amount of competition they've got locally from other big teams, because they're not that far away from the likes of Burnley, the likes of Blackburn, the likes of the Manchester clubs. They're kind of in that region in the northwest where there are so many other football teams that to be successful as a Bolton squad and club for them to be in the Premier League I think was almost their pinnacle and to finish in the top half was immense for them when in reality I think they as the size of club they were they were probably always championship at best but they had a manager that was able to defy the odds with a player that was absolutely magnificent yeah absolutely and you sort of look at some of the signings that Allardyce bore into Bolton during that time, you're looking at the likes of other sort of Premier League sort of greats or big names, the likes of Vardiga Johnson, UC Yaskaline and Irvin Campo, Gary Speed, you know, that 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 sort of those sort of names in that Bolton score were just synonymous for when you and myself were sort of growing up. You know, those are the players that were initially, you know, the, the big names and sort of the stars of the Premier League, you know especially kids sort of growing up nowadays, they're looking at the likes of Bruyne, Haaland, Salah, Mane. For me, UC Eskalainen, even though he played for West Ham for quite a number of years, I always associate him with Bolton first and Absolutely, foremost. Absolutely, yeah. For he's me, a he's, a Bolton, he's a Bolton keeper. And that's mad yeah. to me because I know he then spent probably almost as many years with West Ham as he did Bolton. I don't know the exact dates. But for me, he was... Part, he was that Bolton team. He was, he was part of that. Bolton, yeah. yeah, even though they also had um, the thug El Hadjouf as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, absolute lunatic that he was. And it all seemed to work. And it also did kind of hinge around them having that exciting player that fans were drawn to the stadium to go and watch. I'm sure if you went up to a Bolton game now, and I don't think many people are in a rush to do so, but I bet their attendances are pretty poor. No one really wants to watch them. Well, at the time when you had a player as magical as JJ, people would have been going there every Saturday just to watch him rather than watch the team. It was magic. Yeah, absolutely. You're definitely not wrong. And also going back to JJ, he obviously is an ex-captain of Nigeria, dubbed the Super Eagles, and is a legend of African football, and rightly so. He holds many plaudits, including one where he actually has a stadium named after him. Um, the JJ Okocha Stadium is located in Ogwashi Uku in the Delta States in southern Nigeria. If I have mispronounced that, please do get in touch. I'm sure we'll have some Nigeria it. fans emailing. Big up Nigeria. Um, and that is actually the home ground of Delta Force FC. He was also made the chair of the Delta States, um, an area in the southern part, as I mentioned, of Nigeria. The Delta State FA, a position that he held 
supposedly until 2019, uh, which he was made a chair of in 2015. But as I said, 2019, when he was uh, apparently, he went into hiding after two ex-Nigerian internationals looked to succeed him in the role. There's a, there's a whole story. And I'll I, I didn't realise Nigerian football diplomacy was so violent that a Did chair... You, you know what? It didn't crop up during my um, degree studies. It's that house of cards. It it sounds like Game of Thrones that they want exactly. uh, they want his position. He had to go into hiding. Wow, I love that he got a stadium in his honor. That is a fantastic little. It's not. It's not I, I, as far as I, when I when I did my research on it. I think it only sort of holds a maximum capacity of around eight thousand. But still, to have a stadium named after you clearly shows what oh. you mean to a country and what and to a and to a region. Exactly. Rather than well. In my mind, the Bolton Stadium will always be the Reebok. Even it will always sh- be the Reebok. Even though I'm sure it's been renamed five dozen times since then. Yeah. But it would be nice if there's a JJ Akotcha stand just because oh. just because I think he deserves it. Absolutely. As you say, the, the fans adore him and probably Bolton fans will look back, well, should look back at those times in the Premier League and with him as the best times they've ever had as a football club because nothing will come close. No, and JJ has returned a couple of times to Bolton to play in a couple of charity games since he left, um, clearly as a club legend, because you would not doubt him of that. Uh, once in 2016, and then once again in 2021, where well, the Bolton Legends actually played the first team. Um, the first <laughs> team did manage to actually get on and win the game. However, it was 7-4. They got Go four goals. They wow. did get four goals, and you will not be surprised that JJ scored. It doesn't surprise me at all. So that wraps up the debut feature of the other 14 alumni, JJ Kocha, Porter Player and What a Legend. And now our fan favourite section, it's Goal of the Week. Goal of the Week. So Tom, we've had some great games of football and were they also matched with high quality goals? I think there's a couple of standout goals in the bunch. What are some of the best that you've seen this week? I don't think you can go too far wrong with uh, Kieran Trippier's free kick. Uh, that that just purely gave me 2018 summer vibes when my hopes of an England victory in the World Cup were just right out there in the ether and then just got cruelly, cruelly crushed. But yes, Kieran Trippier's uh, free kick for me against City is definitely up there. What did you make, though, of a, a goal in a win in Shea Adams's acrobatic effort against Leicester. Again, fantastic goal. Um, wonderful ball in from JWP there. And instinctive finishing. And the surprising thing was, you know, Jay Adams scored two in that game and relatively soon after each other, he didn't start the game. So what an impact that he made off the bench. And to, for him to come on and do a quick bicycle kick to put it past Danny Ward for a 2-1 lead and eventually a 2-1 win, again, Fantastic performance and a fantastic goal there. But I, I still think, you know, Trippier's free kick was just, just stunning to look at. I do agree with you in that it was a gorgeous free kick in a big game. Oh, but there's something so magical about the, the goal that Shea Adams scored. It was gorgeous. The way he just rolled back on it, just letting it go over him. The ball was so delightful, just absolutely intersected the two defenders the way it did. You know what? I'm happy to go with you on 
Kieran Trippier's free kick purely on the emotional level that it was so similar to that, or it gave the feeling of England in the semi-final against Croatia in Russia in 2018. So yeah, I think we can say that Kieran Trippier, you've won goal of the week. Goal of the week. And so now we're moving on to listener questions or question for this week. And we do have a question that has been emailed into us at the other 14 pod at gmail.com. So Tom, what's your question and who's it from? Yes, Reese. So my question this week is from Roberts from Essex. And he says, do Newcastle need to add and what are their aspirations for this season? So Rob, thank you very much for that question. Wall, do they need to add? I think it depends what the aspirations of the ownership are. I think for I think we've mentioned this previously in the podcast. I think a lot of Newcastle fans are just happy to see more entertaining football and them actually win some games and go being able to go on a Saturday or Sunday to St James's Park and watch some good football. It's just how long that lasts for. It's just winning some games well good enough or do they actually want to see that be converted into trophies but also it's not necessarily up to the fans because at this point I think the fans are happy with what's being achieved but it's just whether the ownership want more and I think Newcastle do have a good squad for what they're aiming for at the moment as we've said this season we think Newcastle should really be aiming for that kind of seventh eighth ninth kind of positioning which i think they will probably do and their squad is good enough for that under this manager but i think if they want to push on more they will have to spend more and particularly as they have owners that will be happy to spend more i think it'll be a question of when rather than if how about you tom what do you feel about the situation yeah i i I completely agree i think you know as as, if you're a newcastle fan right now you're sites have to be rather steady and the progression that Newcastle will have to make over the coming years because it, it is it's going to be years it's not going to be an instant it's not going to be an instant turnaround so like you said I think first things first I think Newcastle will have to sort of aim their way up the Premier League yeah they did eventually finish was it top half finish they managed to secure last last campaign it was pretty much up there yeah yeah so again, I think they'll need to work their way up the league. Second of all, I think then potentially you're looking on European spaces. And then I think you're probably looking at trophies because that, that, that gradual that gradual climb, because it's going to be a journey now, no matter what. Newcastle, I, I think it's pretty much written, written in the stars now that Newcastle are going to be a force to come for years on end now. It's just, just the way money works now in, in, in football. I think that that progress, I think it will come, but it does depend how much money. Obviously, we know their owners have almost almost an infinite supply of cash behind them, like on football standards. I guess it's just how long the owners stay engaged and invested in this project because they've got the money. I think it's then just down to time and interest because I think any other owner coming into Newcastle should they ever sell, probably won't have the same money to throw at it. 
But if any club currently has the financial potential to propel them to the top of the league, as you say, it will be Newcastle. But it's just how much time that takes. Yeah, I, I think it will take time because you know these sort of things always take time to bed in. But I think Newcastle just have to be Newcastle fans specifically have to be patient. Um, and they have to be fair to them; they have been patient for a long, long time because they have to have had to wait forever to get rid of Mike Ashley. But I think, like we've said, you know, I think they're just going to enjoy the ride now because their team are starting to put on decent performances. They're starting to get results, and they're sort of gradually climbing their way up up the Premier League. The signings have to be sensible. They have to be sensible with the money. You know, the looks looking at what Nottingham Forest have done in terms of money spent and the numbers that they've brought in. Yes, you arguably to say that it was needed to be done, but whether or not it was sensible and sustainable for them to stay in the Premier League is, is another matter. Newcastle spending power, like I said, has to be sensible right now. And, and I think it has been. You know, they're clearly getting results on the pitch. And if you can just sort of add to the squad here and there, add to the starting eleven here and there, you will eventually see that gradual rise. And I, and I think that's something that Newcastle fans can look forward to in the not-too-distant future. Now, you know, we're talking about them in terms of being the best of the rest in terms of the other 14. Potentially looking, you know, if they get maybe a decent run in one of the uh, Cups this year, you know, I definitely think the likes of a FA Cup run or a League Cup run is definitely up there for the taking, up there for grabs, especially considering they don't have European football right now. But that'll change, I'm pretty sure, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, and then who knows where it might be in, in, in the coming years. But I think right now they just sort of have to have to keep their sights steady. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And looking at the players they have bought in since the takeover going into last January's transfer window, um, they've bought in Dan Byrne, Chris Wood, Nick Pope, Kieran Trippier, Bruno Guimaraes and Sven Botman. I think yep. that's pretty much most of them. And I think they've all been really good signings. Sven Botman's pretty much straight in the team. Chris Wood was part of the strike force that kept them up last season. Uh, Bruno Gimaraes, um has been a good addition. For me, the standout additions have, though, been Kieran Trippier and Nick Pope. Absolutely. Nick Pope's only played uh, three games for them. But he's Nick Pope. You know what you're getting from him, a phenomenal shot stopper. So, yeah, I think they'll make more additions over time. I think there's probably some uh, could do with bolstering that midfield with a couple more players over time for them to grow and maybe a couple in defence. But otherwise, I think they've built a team that can definitely grow. They're not trying to buy the instant success. Like Sven Botman, um, he's not going to be the player that is immediately amazing and is a world beater. But give it a couple of years, he could definitely be one of the strongest centre-backs in the Premier League. Yeah, completely agree. So thank you very much for the question, Robert, from Essex. If any other listeners, if you want to ask us a question please email us at the other 14 pod at gmail.com that's the other one four pod at gmail.com or tweet us at other 14 podcast so tom i think the big thing we need to talk about is not leeds it's not newcastle but it's our fad four predictions we didn't not- do very well did we reese oh well, one of us actually got some points. One of us, not so good. So, and the scoring system we decided on is if you get the scoreline exactly correct, you get three points. And if you just get the result in terms of who wins or if it's a draw, you get one point. 
So, Tom, neither of us saw Palace beating Villa last week. Neither of us predicted for the Everton Forest draw. And neither of us saw Southampton going away from Leicester with all three points. But I did correctly predict that Brighton would beat West Ham 2-0. So, you're currently in last place. You're feeling a bit like West Ham right now on zero points. Well, I think my only saving grace with with the last one is that I was trying to be a little bit sort of um, a little bit optimistic for West Ham. I know you've mentioned many times that they that Brighton are West Ham's bogey side. I was like, that's only on paper, you know, it's, it's all sort of water under the bridge, what whatnot. So I was looking for an optimistic result there. Obviously, didn't get it. Obviously, on zero points, not very happy with myself right now. No, and nor should you be. Anyway, going into next week's game week. Tom, what fixtures can we look forward to? So, the fixtures for next week. This is match week four getting on, aren't we? That's season right underway now. We have Southampton versus Manchester United. We've got Brentford up against Everton. Brighton host Leeds. Chelsea host Leicester. Bournemouth go to Anfield. Palace take a trip to Man City, which they've had results before. Arsenal host Fulham. It's Aston Villa against West Ham. Wolverhampton Wanderers host Newcastle. And it's Nottingham Forest versus Spurs at the City Ground. We have some delightful fixtures in there. Crackers there. Amongst all that, we do have six opportunities for the other 14 to beat the big six. So good luck to Southampton, Leicester, Bournemouth, Palace, Fulham and Forest. So, Tom, we've uh, got our Fab Four to sort out. So, our games we need to predict for next week are Brentford versus Everton, Brighton v Leeds, Villa v West Ham, and Wolves v Newcastle. So, let's start with Brentford-Everton. So, Brentford versus Everton. I am going to go with form right now. I think Everton are struggling to get anything going. I am looking for a Brentford 2, Everton nil result. Oh, that is a strong prediction. You know what? I can't disagree too much because I don't see Everton really getting a goal and Brentford are looking incredibly strong right now. So I am going to go for a 3-0 Brentford win. Oh, exactly. So... Leeds v Brighton, both undefeated teams so far this season. Which one of them will remain undefeated? Or do you think points will be split? Looking at Brighton's home record, never has been good in the last couple of years. They don't score many goals at the Amex. However, I am looking for an unbeaten record going this week. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna back Potable. I'm gonna go for a Brighton two Leeds one result. Oh, Brighton getting two at home to Leeds. That is a bold I, 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 I just fancy it. I just fancy it. Fair enough. My dream is for as many teams in the other 14 to remain unbeaten throughout the season. So similar to how Brighton and Newcastle fared the other week, I am going to go for a result where the points are split. And I'm saying it's going to be 1-1 between those two down at the Amex. Okay, we've mentioned it a couple of times. Aston Villa v West Ham, perhaps a must-win for both. Where do you think the goals are being scored? I think some goals are going to be scored, Reese. I think West Ham are going to finally get off the mark this campaign. 
I look at Villa's performance over the last couple of weeks. They are at home, but I am going for a 2-1 West Ham win. Oh, still not thinking that West Ham are going to get their first clean sheet of the season. I do think West Ham will get that clean sheet. I think they'll maybe shore up the defence. Tilo Kera will spend a bit more time working with the team and he's now got a bit more match, uh, match experience underneath him. So I'm going to go for a 1-0, which I think David Moyes would be over the moon with. I can already see his little Scottish face beaming with excitement in the post-match interview. And then Wolves v Newcastle. Newcastle going away to Molyneux. Will Newcastle remain undefeated? Oh, it's a good question, Reese. I do think that Newcastle will remain undefeated, but I also look at Wolves being winless in eight and are due probably a result. They keep, you know, they keep getting chances. They're not quite putting them away. So I, I'm going to go for a one-all draw. I'm going to be boring. Go for one-all draw. Oh, that is a little dull, but could be spot on. I was fully prepared to go for a Newcastle win until you said about Wolves not winning in eight. Oh, that it's amazing how these sorts of uh, these yeah, results I'm, really sway your thought. My prediction does make it nine nine without a win, but still, I, 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 I'm, go, I'm, I'm unfortunately going to say that I think Newcastle's run will take a little stutter. And Ooh. I'm going to say they're going to lose 2-1. Okay, so... I'm currently in the lead, three points to nil in our Fab Four prediction. Join us next week to see how we both get on with Game Four's results. So, thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of The Other 14 Podcast with Tom and myself. Please subscribe to us and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Also, do recommend us to all friends and family who are interested in the other 14 clubs. We are now available on all good podcast platforms, including Google, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We have an exciting week ahead of us with a full house of six opportunities for the other 14 to tarnish the dreams of the big six clubs. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And we'll see you next week on the Other 14 podcast.